with a closer look at the news and events affecting Prince George. Welcome to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. And it's the Friday edition, which means we'll have hot topics with the panel coming up in about the bottom of the hour. But to start today's program, it is this morning's front burner from CBC News. You might have first learned about Mulan in the late 90s, when the hugely popular Disney movie came out. My ancestor sent a little lizard to help me. Hey, dragon, dragon, not lizard. I don't do that tongue thing. You're, um... Intimidating? Awe-inspiring? Tiny. The story, based on a 6th century poem, is about a young woman who disguises herself as a man in order to save her father from going to war. Fast forward 22 years to the live-action remake, and a very different Mulan emerges. You need to find the Emperor. We'll hold them back! Till next we meet Hongwei. Mulan is played in this version by the actor Liu Yafei as a fierce superhero skilled in martial arts. And he's got a singular goal, save the Emperor. Mulan's loyalty to China is central to the retelling of the story, which seems to foreshadow much of the controversy the movie has faced since the remake was announced. American actress Liu Yifei angered fans with a social media post reportedly supporting Hong Kong's police, who have been accused of using... And now, after the film's release on Disney Plus last week, there are renewed calls for a boycott. That's because of the movie's ties to Xinjiang province in China. According to multiple investigations, about a million Uyghurs and other minority Muslim groups are or have been detained and persecuted there. But this is something that the Chinese government continues to deny. Today I'm talking to Frankie Huang about the controversial remake of Disney's Mulan and what that says about China as a cultural power. Frankie has written a lot about the subject. I'm Josh Block. This is Front Burner. Hello, Frankie. Hi. We'll get to the controversy around this remake of Mulan in a moment, but I want to start with your own connection to Mulan. What was the first time that you heard about her? Um, probably when I was a young girl, maybe age eight or nine. The Ballad of Mulan is a classic poem taught to Chinese children, and at one point I was able to recite it from memory. And it's a story that I always really loved because I was also a tomboy, and you know, this story of a girl joining the army in disguise and doing better than all the men was extremely empowering to me, and she's just a figure really dear to my heart. On each scroll, there's father's name. Father has no grown-up son. Mulan has no elder brother. I want to buy a saddle and horse and serve in the army in father's place. And then, of course, this, this folk hero inspires a hugely successful Disney movie in the late 90s. What did that character mean to you growing up? So I was already living in the U.S. by the time that came out. And I've always been a lifelong Disney fangirl. So seeing the studio make a feature-length movie about one of my favorite characters was a dream come true. But when I saw the movie... I admit I was a little bit disappointed by some of the careless details they included that I think could have been more true to Chinese culture and practices if they, I think, did more research. But in hindsight, it's probably because those elements were to appeal to the uh, Western viewers. 
I remember specifically when she dressed up for the matchmaker. To please your future in-laws, you must demonstrate a sense of dignity. You must also be poised. silent her face was powder white and I think it made me think much more of Japanese geishas than Chinese ladies but all in all it's it was still uh, a movie I really really loved um, the music was really wonderful and I, I didn't really mind Mushu that much now let's see your wall face oh I think my bunny slippers just ran for cover come on scam me girl even though you know that was a that was a very uh, American element to the movie, right? But I suppose, uh, despite these inauthenticities, Disney does have a is a, a kind of powerful cultural force within China, right? For sure, um, I think it came out a year later uh, in China than in the U.S. due to some sanctions. Mm -hmm. But I, I'm sure a lot of the children in China were maybe not as excited as I was, but uh, just as excited to see Disney make a Chinese story. And Disney is a, is a brand that's synonymous with childhood. Um, they entered China very early when I was growing up in the uh, late 80s, early 90s. Uh, I'm in my 30s and so are a lot of my, my peers in China. They, they think of Disney as something really pure and wonderful that they enjoyed as, as children, yeah. How would you describe the character of Mulan in this latest live-action remake? Um, well, it's certainly very different. She was designed to appeal much more to the Chinese market, which is uh, humongous compared to uh, how it was in the 90s. Disney knew that the, the 98 version was not well-received in part because of some of the cultural in inauthenticities um, and they wanted to course correct. So we got this much more serious, stoic Mulan and I think it's because Disney was probably concerned that humor would be interpreted as disrespect, like laughing at Chinese culture. So they gave us this very serious historical-esque movie even though if you if you actually uh, watched a film it cherry picks different elements from Chinese history to create this fantasy version of China citizens we are under attack from northern invaders their leader calls himself Khan. but they they sort of want you to feel that Disney is being respectful and I think they're hoping the Chinese audiences would be much more receptive to that were you surprised by the patriotic tone of it, or does that just feel in line with like patriotic American films, like Saving Private Ryan? It doesn't make any sense, sir. Why? Why me? Why do I deserve to go? Why not any of these guys? They all fought just as hard as me. Is that what they're supposed to tell your mother when they send her another folded American flag? Oh, well, that's a little bit different. I think um, Saving Private Ryan. Well, first of all, it can it, it artistically um, on another level, but I think they also are a, bit, a little bit more subtle about their nationalism. Um, I think viewers can watch that movie 
and not realize that it's also sort of propaganda for for the military. But but for Mulan, it was almost embarrassingly blatant that this is, yeah, like has strong nationalistic elements. And maybe it's because Disney looked at all the top performing movies in the Chinese domestic box office and noticed that a lot of them are um, basically propaganda films. Um, Wolf Warrior comes to mind. Uh, Wandering Earth as well. They're all about people sort of uh, fighting for China and being, you know, superhuman and overcoming all odds. And I think Mulan was perhaps trying to do the same. That is the first part of this morning's Front Burner from CBC News. Segment number two coming up in a moment. You're listening to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. Hey world, this is Michael Franti. This is Kanan. For Horror in the Dark. Gogo Bordello. Hi, I'm Natasha Atlas. Greetings, this is Tanya Stevens. Justin Adams. This is Steve Riley of the Mamu Playboys. Talvin Singh, you're listening to Free Range Radio. Steve Berlin. Cesar Rosas. We're from Los Lobos and you've discovered music with no borders and no boundaries. This is Cal Code. The best artists in the world come home to World Beat Canada Radio. Join me each week for a ride on the global side. World Beat Canada Radio, Sunday nights at 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. Disaster financial assistance has been authorized for landslides and major flooding in the northeast region of B.C. from June 14th to July 13th. Homeowners, residential tenants, small business owners, farmers, charitable organizations, and local government bodies affected are asked to submit their applications as soon as possible to have their damage assessed promptly. Full details are available online at gov.bc.ca slash disaster financial assistance. Administered by emergency Management BC. The submission deadline for the disaster financial assistance is October 16th. September is World Alzheimer's Month, with World Alzheimer's Day set for the 21st. All month long, the Alzheimer's Society of BC is presenting online dementia education and programs. The free webinars are about an hour in length, starting at 2 each Wednesday. Register for upcoming sessions or view previous presentations through the webinar link at alzbc.org. Take part to learn about dementia from the comfort of your own home. Free webinars each Wednesday through the end of September at alzbc.org. Org. Forecast from Environment Canada, sunny today and a high of 22. For tonight, partly cloudy with a low of 7. A mix of sun and cloud on Saturday and a high of 20. This is After 9 on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFIS-FM. And now the second part of this morning's Front Burner from CBC News. So the stakes are pretty high for this film. Disney reportedly spent $200 million U.S. on it, and it, it needs it to succeed internationally, and arguably especially in China. However, the movie has also been mired in controversy, most recently having to do with where it was filmed. Can you talk a bit about that? A few uh, sharp-eyed viewers noticed that the film thanked multiple uh, Chinese government agencies in the credits uh, several of them are uh, located in Xinjiang, and uh, a few um, journalists and researchers sort of looked into some of the locations, uh, as well as the, I think, Instagram post made by director Nikki Carroll during a scouting trip in, in Xinjiang, 
uh, it, it became very obvious that some of the filming that took place was very, very close to where Uyghur uh, concentration camps were located. China doesn't want the world to see Xinjiang up close. To see the crackdown, it calls an answer to terrorism. There have only been fleeting glimpses of swelling detention centers, but now there's real proof. Secret blueprints of mass incarceration and indoctrination of Muslims. I also learned that most stu foreign studios are not permitted to film in that area. So in order for Disney to get permission, they probably jump through a lot of hoops to, to be there. And so just to be clear, I mean, this is incredibly controversial because Xinjiang province is where there's roughly a million people, mainly Muslim Uyghurs. It's, it's where they live. And we know from leaked government documents that uh, many of them are imprisoned and indoctrinated in these re-education camps, which the Chinese government denies. What's been the reaction to this news once people found out about the film's relationship to that province? Well, I've been noticing major media platforms picking up the story right away and um, highlighting what we already know about the, the concentration camp situation in China. And given the amount of attention it's getting, I think a lot of people who maybe knew a little bit about what's happening but were not quite so aware are learning exactly how complicit Disney has been in lending its own legitimacy to what's happening in, in Xinjiang. And there's backlash. Um, I saw this one celebrity, uh, I think it's uh, Padma Lakshmi maybe, tweet about watching Mulan with her daughter and then someone told her about what's actually happening and she, you know, correct, sort of corrected her statement and said, I had no idea, but now I know better. And I think that's probably happening for a lot of people, particularly for for Asian Americans who were at first just concerned with maybe how China and Chinese culture is portrayed in the movie now, I think some of them are also realizing that this is much bigger than just a story. It's about justice. And it also seems to have renewed calls to boycott the movie, uh, which was a movement that actually started last year when the lead actress, Liu Yafei, shared her opinion on pro-democracy protests in Hong Kong. What did she say back then that, that prompted that original call to boycott the film? Liu Yifei did the equivalent of tweeting um, on Weibo, which is a mi microblogging platform in China, saying, like explicitly stating her support for the police um, and saying, essentially, shame on you, Hong Kong, for for making the, uh, the police have to put you down. A new decade in Hong Kong begins in chaos with police cracking down on protesters. What began last year as protests over an extradition bill has morphed into demands for democracy, sending hundreds of thousands into the streets. The police tactics used to try to quell them are garnering unflattering international scrutiny. And um, I was actually watching this situation very closely myself, and I was waiting for Disney to make a statement and reprimand her or take a, take a stand on, on the situation. You know, this was also unfolding around the time when NBA was having their own controversy surrounding a general manager of Houston Rockets supporting the, the protest. And the National Basketball Association, or NBA in the U.S., 
It's facing a huge backlash for its reaction to this tweet by the Houston Rockets general manager, a tweet backing pro-democracy demonstrations right here in Hong Kong. The NBA is apparently siding with Beijing, calling Daryl Morey's tweet regrettable. The NBA's response is also raising questions, questions over the lengths that businesses in the U.S. have to go and are willing to go to stay in favor with the Chinese government for access to the lucrative Chinese market. The, the calls for boycotting Mulan kind of came after Disney, like, very pointedly stayed silent on the whole situation and waited for the media cycle to just take it away. But I think they're trying to do the same now. I don't think they've uh, issued any statements since the, the Xinjiang aspect of the film came to light. And I don't think it's going to work a second time for them to just let everyone forget about this and move on. Hmm. I mean, it seems that Disney, like the NBA, is sort of caught between, caught in this bind almost between, you know, not offending the Chinese government, but then also not alienating audiences outside of China and not seeming like they're not standing up for values of, of human rights and democracy and freedom of expression. Yeah, I think this is something that all um, large international, multinational brands will have to deal with if they're interested in the China market, because access to that market is becoming increasingly conditional to, you know, tacitly being complicit to uh, what the Chinese government is doing. And it's no longer something you can have both ways. The film opens in China today, and I saw that there are reports that mainland Chinese media outlets are being asked not to review the film. You know, what do you think that says about the call for the boycott and, and the impact that it might be having? I think the call for boycott and all the international attention is making the, the Chinese government feel pretty cagey about the whole thing. I think originally they were going to throw their support behind the film and encourage people to go see it because it's you know a celebration of conservative values in China and that like sort of patriarchal parental relationship that the government has with the people is, is celebrated in, in the film. But now that people are asking too many questions and a lot of Chinese people are aware of what's being talked about beyond the borders despite heavy censorship. They just want to shut the whole conversation down. They probably don't want people to go see the movie now either just because that means generating more conversation around what people are talking about. You've written about how Mulan is really part of this much bigger picture of Disney's relationship with China. The original Mulan, released in 1998, was actually initially barred from China, and it was seen as retribution for a Disney film called Kundun, which was a celebration of the Dalai Lama. And Disney has worked really hard to get into the Chinese market since then. How crucial is the Chinese market to this company? Multiple Disney CEOs and top executives' sons have uh, stated that China is extremely important to the, the company. They have two theme parks in China, as well as hundreds of trademark 
partnerships with local brands selling everything from lunchboxes to tennis shoes. They cannot afford to lose China without having to probably renegotiate their their finances. And what could this controversy mean for the future of co-productions between the U.S. and China? It's hard to say what is going to happen, except Disney, at the very least, will have learned a lesson that doing everything the Chinese government wants may not pay off for them in the end. Because, as I said earlier, I think this kind of controversy is unavoidable. And if the Chinese government shuts everything down every time there is controversy, then there's no point for Disney to lend its halo to the Chinese government in legitimizing their actions. It's only a worthwhile investment if they know that there's going to be some kind of return. Exactly. And I don't think um, that the return that they were hoping for was ever going to happen. What do you think the cost is to society and culture when we see more and more companies like Disney working so hard to please the Chinese regime? Well, first of all, that's they're damaging their own master brand, but probably not doing huge damage because it, it is like, especially for Disney, they're such a beloved brand. What happened with, uh, with Mulan is a lesson for, for Disney and, and for other brands as well, that we, when if you get too greedy and you try to basically profit off of legitimizing human rights violations, it's eventually going to catch up to you and people are going to notice. So um, losing millions of dollars on, uh, on Mulan, uh, I think is something that Disney, as well as other brands, will not soon forget. You know, we started off by talking about how much the story of Mulan means to you personally. How does it feel to you to see it so politicized and, and so caught up in this controversy now? Well, it's deeply saddening to me, but at the same time, Mulan is a story, it's a framework, I suppose, um, that's been expanded on many, many times uh, on TV, in operas, in plays, in graphic novels. I don't think the story itself is damaged. I think there are still millions of people like myself that you know, love the the origin, where it comes from. While it's a huge shame, I think there will be other tellings of Mulan to come. The, the ballad has already survived hundreds of years. It'll, it'll survive this controversy, too. For sure. Frankie, thank you so much for speaking with me. Thanks for having me. According to data from China's largest online ticketing platform, Mulan is expected to be shown on more than 40% of China's theaters starting today. Analysts predict a weak performance due to piracy and negative reviews. As of Thursday afternoon, it had sold over $1 million U.S. worth of tickets. For reference, that's less than one-sixth of the opening day profits for the movie Tenet in the country. That's all for today. Front Burner is brought to you by CBC News and CBC Podcasts. The show was produced this week by Imogen Burchard, Ali James, and Shannon Higgins. Derek Vanderwijk, Mandy Shem, and Mac Cameron did our sound design. Our music is by Joseph Shabison of Boombox Sound. The executive producers of Front Burner this week were Elaine Chow and Nick McCabe Locos. I'm Josh Block. Thanks for listening to Front Burner.
Frontburner is a production of CBC News. Frontburner can be found on the CBC Listen app or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Advocate Life and Education Services is holding a virtual fundraising gala October 23rd. Former sports writer and professional golfer Kirk Walden will be the keynote speaker. Author of the powerful new book, The Wall, Walden has over 30 years of experience and influence advocating for women and children. It promises to be an evening filled with humor, vision, and hope. Advocate Life and Education Services Virtual Fundraising Gala, Friday, October 23rd. For full details, visit advocate.ca. In an effort to acknowledge the tireless work of restaurants and food service to provide safe dining during the pandemic, the BC Restaurant and Food Services Association has launched the Stand Up for Service campaign. After dining in anywhere across BC, visit bcrfa.com and share your story of the person or business which helped make your experiences welcoming and unique while following the best practices to combat COVID-19. As more and more eating establishments reopen across the province, please remember to bring your good habits with you and be kind. Registration is open for this year's Healthy Living Leader Training Sessions from the Indigenous Sport, Physical Activity and Recreation Council. The dates for the Northwest Northeast region are September 22nd and 23rd, with this year's sessions taking place online. Training is available to anyone who wants to deliver an Indigenous run walk or honor your health challenge. The Northwest Northeast region's Healthy Living Leader Training Sessions from iSpark.ca, September 22nd and 23rd online. Registration deadline is today. Spend some quiet time surrounded by nature and learn more about Canada's forest regions at Good Sur Nature Park. Located in Salmon Valley, the Good Sur Nature Park is a botanical conservatory featuring multiple walking trails leading by hundreds of botanical displays with signage and detailed information. Guided tours are available and admission is by donation. For more information or to book a group visit, go online to goodsurnaturepark.ca or tourismpg.com. You're listening to After 9 on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFIS-FM. Good morning. Welcome to the panel portion of After 9. I'm your host, Bill Phillips, on this beautiful Friday morning, one of the last wonderful days of summer. Probably one of the only wonderful days of summer we've had this year, but uh, uh, let's get on to bigger and better things. I'm joined by my regular slew of panelists today, Eric Allen, Tracy Calageros, Herb Martin, and Art Betke. Um... Let's get right into it with uh, news about a week or so ago that uh, the parkade downtown at uh, at the city and on Victoria Street there that they're building with for those condos um, is about five million dollars over budget on a twelve million dollar project. I know city financing is uh, near and dear to Eric. Uh, uh, Alan, who's actually organized a couple of counter petitions about borrowing and stuff for City Hall. Eric, what's your take on uh, the city over budget on yet another project? Well, I think, you know, you know this, uh, like Skakin says, how did we get it so wrong? I'm looking at one of the headlines in the PG Daily News. Oh, thanks Skaken for the plug. on a $5 million parkade <laughs> cost overruns. Well, I guess... One of the reasons they got it so wrong is that I don't think anybody's minding the store. You know, there's no, there doesn't seem to be, I mean, uh, the city manager said that they made a report to the Finance and Audit Committee, I don't know, five, six, eight months ago or November, something. November, I think it was, yeah. November. Well, the Frizzell's the head of the Finance Committee, and I think the mayor's on that committee and a few other people, so I, I'm not sure where they're getting this idea that, you know, how did it go wrong? Uh, there was some information there indicating what was happening so 
I guess the real question is, is like, what the hell's going on at City Hall? And why don't they know this? Some of those people have been there for 18, 20 years. There shouldn't be any surprises. You know, we should know what we're doing by now. So I'm a little concerned about this. That's just one project. And uh, and they're not finished because now they're talking about uh, putting in that uh, child care facility in there somewhere. I don't know sure where they're going to put it. I think I, I, I don't know exactly, but I think that's just going to be like on one of the ground floors of one of the buildings. That's what I'm assuming. Uh, don't don't quote me on that. But No, so so instead of having four buildings there, you maybe only have three? Yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah, so that doesn't sound good if that's the direction it's going. So I, I don't know how, and I think the question has to be asked. We, we need somebody that's going to go for freedom of information and find out how we ever arrived at the idea to put it there in the first place because it should have never gone there. Yeah. Um, Tracy, uh, to quote uh, uh, the Brian Skaken headline in the PG Daily News, plug myself there again, um, how did they get it so wrong at the city? I, uh, I'm not really sure. Five million over on a $12 million project does seem extreme. Um, I know they've talked about there being some engineering issues, but as I recall, that was the same problem that we had had with the Willowkale Bridge project with engineering issues that seemed to be unforeseen as they got into the, the job. And yes, that happens, but it seems to happen with an alarming frequency at the moment around here. And, you know, this isn't a minor overrun. It's a major overrun. And yes, the cost of steel and aluminum for sure has been a huge issue that you really don't have any choice but to deal with, but I can't imagine that being $5 million worth. So I don't know if I, if I was that far over on a project, I'd have to have a pretty good explanation in order to be able to not only explain it to my board, but to get through audit at year end. So I, I have no idea yeah. really where that's going wrong. Yeah. And I think, uh, for me, I think if, if I was, uh, when I was in the corporate world, if I, if I was that far over, I, I'd better let my superiors know before it was past the no point of no return. And I think that's one of the issues, uh, Herb, uh, I think part of it is how much the staff can authorize, uh, uh, to go over budget without having to go to council. Yeah. So, uh, the city council, the city budget, um, uh, at the moment is sub roughly around $200 million a year including capital uh, budget, um, uh, 5% of that is, um, is, is uh, what, um, uh, $100 million, is it? Uh, uh, no. It's about sorry. nine, I think about $9 million they're allowed. Um, well, it's, it's uh, according to the um, uh, Garth Frizzell, uh, they, they passed an amendment in 2019 that allowed them to uh, go up to five percent of the total the city budget. So, yeah. one million at a time, they can they can go up to um, uh, ten million dollars. Yeah, anyway. it's about between yeah. nine and ten. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that's a, that's a lot of money without any any real uh, uh, responsibility. Um, that's is pretty crazy. And the, Does anybody yeah, thing, know what I mean, their materiality is? The which What's sir. That? Their Does anyone know what the city's materiality is? Like, I know when I have my audit done every year at the museum, they give me a number that anything under, it's usually 5 to 8%, um, that's a variance after the first audit is done. They don't uh, worry about it because it's considered to be immaterial. I'm wondering if that's different for municipalities? Uh, yeah, the the 
the nine, the roughly between nine and ten million that the city manager is is allowed to approve, um, I believe is uh, is a blanket approval. So, uh, it in theory you could have a one million dollar project and she could approve nine million dollar overrun on that one project. Yeah, it seems seems pretty crazy. And 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 the other problem is all these large projects. Are, you know, we've got the Willow Hill, uh, uh Bridge that was over budget. Um, uh, the fire hall is over budget. If you go back far enough, the road up to uh, UNBC went way over budget. Um, these are all um, cost-plus projects. Uh, why aren't we doing fixed-cost uh, projects? I mean, it's, uh, it's, it sort of seems elementary. It's just like a, a free-for-all for all the contractors out there when they, when they come to Prince George. Mm-hmm. Art, uh, what's, what's your take on this? How can the, how can the city... Uh uh, start avoiding these kind of things. And it seems to be happening more with the city than anybody else. I think they need to uh, be a lot more careful when they're planning these things in the first place. Uh, most of these cost overruns seem to be a matter of uh, unforeseen problems, like the, the bridge and, the, uh, like Herb mentioned, the road up to UNBC, although there were people who did warn of the problems on that road. So uh, they should have known I don't know, did they ignore them? Did they not do their research? Uh, this is uh, for, for cost plus. They have to figure out these things and probably put in an allowance for the unforeseen because we seem to get them all the time. I know if it's uh, a bid situation, I do know that a lot of companies will bid real low, unrealistically low to get the job, and then when it's half built, uh, say, oh, we need more money, we can't do it for this. And then what's the government to do? Uh, that's, that's what happened with the jail. Uh, a local company I know, one of the management people told me they bid as absolute low as they could, and they were one of the highest bids. The winning bid from Alberta uh, did exactly that. Halfway through, told the government, we need a lot more money, we can't do it for this. And the government had no choice but to pony up, because... What are they going to do, uh, let the company go bankrupt and the jail half finished while they try and find another contractor to finish it a year later or something? So they paid. Uh, this kind of thing is, uh, they got to find a way to stop people doing things like that. But as far as uh, cost plus, they got to find a way to be a little more uh, careful in, in their uh, assessments before they start building. Uh, yeah, Eric. One of the one of the things I guess uh, that's that's happened here is there, there seems to be a few councillors who are saying that they want to change uh, how much authority the city manager has to approve these things because that's that's a part of it. I guess part of the other issue, other than the engineers, is why council doesn't know about these things. Um, do you think they can actually do something or? Uh, is this just talk? Because I think the last time they talked about the same thing, but nothing's changed since then. Well, I thought they actually did change it to allow her to uh, do that. Yeah, they not that long ago. Yeah, that was probably a year ago. And that was yeah. that was the change that that gave her authority up to five percent of the entire yeah. city budget. Yeah. Yeah. So now they're having maybe having a second look at that. Yeah. <clears throat> we have to have. I mean, these people. Highly paid, supposedly, you know, we looked all over North America to get them for these jobs, which is another story because we didn't look any further than First Avenue when we got Derek, and we didn't look any further than University when we got 
another chap there, and uh, Soltis was born in Prince George. So this idea that we got to go all over North America to get the best people is a bit of a stretch, I would say. But, uh, you know, these people are getting paid good money to do a good job, and I don't think we're getting bang for our buck. You know, I, and uh, that's why I say, but, you know, we've got other problems in... Um, you know, it says BC needs a municipal watchdog. This is in another uh, news media, and then it goes on to tell you that there's only ten people that work on the municipal audit, and there's no way in hell that they can do a proper audit of any of these cities. And they basically gave up on it a number of years ago. I think it had some problems with the city of Revelstoke or something, and uh, so we haven't had any audits. The provincial government audit has a hundred staff. The municipal for all the municipalities in, B- municipalities in BC. There's only 10. So that's it. You know, you can't do the job with that. Now they're talking about going out and get an independent audit auditor to come in and look at Prince George. And I think that's probably a good idea, but it still begs the question, if we have a municipal audit already and people on the payroll, why do we, the citizens and taxpayers, have to go out and, and hire private people to do the job that should be done in-house? And... Uh, it's just too much government. That's all there is. There's way too much government, too many people on the payroll, and all pretending to do something. How did we get this uh, child care facility going down where it is? Who in the hell knew anything about that a year ago? But the city, who goes through all these grants and everything, they actually find a project, then they try to design it so they meet the criteria, and then they build it. Yeah. So who's going to use that child care facility down there on Queensway, across from City Hall. Yeah. Maybe city staff. Good. Maybe a few people in the condos. But yeah. you could have built that anywhere in Prince George. They built it there because there's some other problems we don't know about yet. Okay, on that note, we will take a short break and, and come back with uh, some election talk. With the weather warming up, Prince George residents are heading outside to enjoy the beauty of our natural environment on park trails or just in their own backyard. That also means facing mosquitoes and finding invasive plants, both of which the city is working hard to control. For mosquitoes, the city has worked over the past 25 years to find the methods which have the least impact on the environment. For information on invasive plants, go to princegeorge.ca slash invasive. To report an invasive plant, go to reportaweedbc.ca or call 1-866-44-WEEDS. Registration is open for this year's Healthy Living Leader Training Sessions from the Indigenous Sport, Physical Activity and Recreation Council. The dates for the Northwest Northeast region are September 22nd and 23rd, with this year's sessions taking place online. Training is available to anyone who wants to deliver an Indigenous run walk or honor your health challenge. The Northwest Northeast region's Healthy Living Leader Training Sessions from iSpark.ca, September 22nd and 23rd online. Registration deadline is today. The award-winning digital research project BC Artists is now available online for free public access. BC Artists is a research tool to find published information about visual artists who were active in BC from the 1700s to today. The information is invaluable to appraisers, archivists, artists, and anyone interested in the visual art history of our province. Free access to this valuable database of information is available online through the BC Artists links at sim-publishing.com. Forecast from Environment Canada, sunny today at a high of 22, for tonight partly cloudy with a low of 7, a mix of sun and cloud on Saturday at a high of 20. 
keeping you up to date on current news and events in and around Prince George. This is After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. And we're back. I'm your host, Bill Phillips, and uh, we're switching a bit to uh, fall is coming, and quite often that means election winds are blowing, and they certainly seem to be blowing stronger and stronger these days, both federally and provincially. Um, But in the COVID-19 world, are we comfortable with going to an election? And uh, I'll start with Tracy. Um, If there's an election called, are you comfortable with going to vote in the ballot booth ballot box or uh would you vote uh, by mail-in and do you think mail-in ballots are the way to get around this well if they gave me the option for a mail-in ballot at this point yes i would use that rather than going to a ballot box although if there weren't mail-in ballots i would be prepared to go into a, a booth and vote i'd wear my mask and wash my hands and do all the things i need to do i'm just not sure that any level of government should be going to an election right now, even ignoring the potential for exposure at the voting booth, the distraction and the rise in partisan rhetoric, I think would be horrific right now. People are fragile and exhausted at the moment. The last thing in the world we need to do is have everybody coloring up onto their team party wagons and screaming at each other on social media and on the road. It's insane. Yeah. Herb, uh, how about you? Would you be comfortable with... Uh uh, donning a mask or whatever, and, or boldly going into a ballot box and uh, marking your X, or would you be more comfortable with a uh, a mail-in ballot? Yeah, I think either one I'd be comfortable with in, uh, doing. The you know my previous experience voting um, is that it's, it really wouldn't be too hard to maintain social distancing, and you know if you were, you know uh, were able to um, you know. Uh, provide adequate ventilation to indoor facilities, it shouldn't be a problem. And, of course, mail-in voting would, would be a, is, always a, is always an option. So I, I think, yeah, that's, uh, for, it's, perfectly, uh, it's perfectly doable, I would, I would think. Yeah. Uh, it does, it, does the government want to do it? That's the next thing, because, I mean, things could turn horribly wrong, and uh, they, would, they would bear the brunt if, in case it did. That's... That's the main problem, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, Art, uh, how about you? Um, any any issues with with voting? Should an election be called? Absolutely not, because I'm immune. I've already had it, so <laughs> I'm I'm not afraid to go in there. You've but had COVID nineteen? Yes, middle of August. Oh, yeah, all and clear fine. now. And you're fine. Oh, I'm good. fine. Good yep. for you. Um, no, you, even for the every the rest of you vulnerable people, though. Uh, I can't see that the exposure would be any worse than going into a grocery store. It'd be spaced about the same in a nice big area like the school gym where I vote, so I don't think it would be a problem. I don't think anybody should be afraid of it. Mm-hmm. Right on. Eric, uh, how about you? Any any qualms about voting in a COVID world? Well, no. The, you know, I agree with Art on that. It wouldn't be a lot different than going to the grocery store. And some go with masks and some go without. I think it probably insisted that masks be worn there, and I would expect that the people working there would all be behind plastic you know, of some sort, you know, like they do in the uh, grocery stores. And you go in and do your vote, or you do the mail-in. But I think it's important. We don't get that great a turnout. Uh, hopefully this time around we will get better. But I think it's very important that Canadians as a whole get out and vote, uh, exercise their democratic right, and do it in a sane and rational manner so that 
other parts of the world can see that, you know, that's how a democracy is supposed to work. Mm-hmm. Not, not the way it works for some countries now, which makes you just shudder. Like, I, I just wonder if we're all going to hell in the handbasket here. Like, we need to stand up and uh, for the rights and the liberty that, that we deserve and we've had for 100, 200, 300 years and be awful careful of what's happening uh, that we might lose that. It's a hell of a lot more serious than what we think it is. And, and that fiasco in the United States is a good example of what can happen if you don't exercise your right and if politicians don't start doing their jobs. Our duty and the only opportunity we get when a politician doesn't do their job is to throw them the hell out. And mm-hmm. we haven't been doing that lately, and we're going to have to start. Yeah, um, Tracy, uh, uh, we've had mail-in ballots for a long, long time. It's it just that they aren't uh, traditionally used. Um, but do you think maybe, I, I don't know how close we are, but maybe we should be looking at online uh, voting as well? Yeah, I know that there was a lot of talk of that in 2015 behind the scenes and again in 2019, at least within the the liberal circles that I was talking to. There's a real desire to find a way to do it in a safe manner. And for certain, the generations younger than my own are very interested in a digital voting opportunity. Mm -hmm. I think uh, we absolutely need people to vote. It's so important, but we have to do it in a way that not only is safe and secure, but that is seen to be safe and secure. And given what has gone on with the foreign actors on uh, the elections in the U.S. and the influence they've had in Canada, I think there's a general distrust right now of the digital world. So I don't know if now's the time, but I certainly think that it is the way the future will be, and we have to figure out some way to be able to lock down those digital worlds. Right on. <clears throat> Excuse me. And on that note, we will take another short break. With Community Health at the forefront, Theatre Northwest is preparing for a shortened season. Instead of their usual four productions, Theatre Northwest will be presenting two shows in the late spring of 2021. The shortened season will start with a side-splitting comedy, Mum's the Word, from April 16th to May 5th, followed by the pop hits of the 50s and early 60s featured in the musical The Marvelous Wonderettes, May 21st to June 9th. Tickets and passes are available by phone or online through ticketsnorthwest.com. After much deliberation, the Exploration Place Board of Trustees, along with the Centre's management team, have decided to delay the facility's reopening to next spring. The closure will allow the museum the opportunity to undergo a major renovation, which will enhance the Exploration Place's ability to offer a world-class experience. Meanwhile, items from the gift shop are still available for curbside pickup, and everyone is encouraged to follow their online programming through Facebook and at theexplorationplace.com. The City of Prince George is now accepting MyPG Community Grant applications. The grant assists nonprofit groups with applications evaluated based on a list of criteria, including encouraging a safe community, increasing community pride, and providing opportunities for involvement in arts and culture. More information and application details are available through the grants link under city services at princegeorge.ca. The City of Prince George MyPG Community Grant Application deadline is October 15th. It's after 9 on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFIS-FM. Hello again, I'm your host Bill Phillips, and we've been talking about uh, politics, or talking about voting uh, earlier, and uh, and now we'll switch a little bit to people who we may, may or may not vote for. Uh, this week, uh, new Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole unveiled his shadow cabinet, 
and uh, Todd Doherty is uh, is still in, although not in a critic's role. Is he's a special advisor on mental health, and and Bob Zimmer is out. Uh, he was the Northern Affairs critic under Andrew Shear, and it should be noted that. Uh, uh, both supported uh, Peter McKay in the Conservative leadership. Uh, we'll go to Herb uh, first. Um, which, what does this mean for the the ridings uh, in this area, if anything? I think um, neither one of the uh, local MPs are uh, really standout um, performers on the uh, on the federal stage. So I don't think really much. So yeah, there, there, there's going to be very little difference. Yeah, um, Art, uh, what's your, what's your take on uh, on these? Does it, does it show who's who's in favor and, and who's not with the new leader, or or does it make much difference? It it might show that. Yeah, um, it, it really doesn't make all that much difference at this point. Uh, if he should um, take power, then then you'll see who becomes cabinet minister. But at as a shadow cabinet, it it really doesn't signal all that much. Uh, it, it's they've got really nothing special to do, except oppose the the government. So uh, they're not building anything at this point. They're not making any uh, decisions. Uh, so no, it's really I don't think it means much at all. And on Eric, uh, the Aaron O'Toole's shadow cabinet is 43 members. Uh, does that, that seems to be a little large, I guess, uh, although I can't remember how many Trudeau has in his cabinet. Uh, do you think that shows, uh, well, obviously, when you name your shadow cabinet, it shows who you're thinking of and what kind of direction you want to take the government in? Yeah, I was, uh, well, I was kind of good to see that they had some concrete information out there in the time frame that they got it out. <clears throat> it shows that somebody's been kind of looking after this store. The uh, the actual, I didn't get into too much detail, I haven't had the time, but it, it looks to me like a lot of the people that support him are getting the plums and the people that didn't support him are getting the pits. And that's, uh, you know, kind of the way it goes in politics. But again, you know, I think... Uh, already managed to hang in there because he got that private members built for, for veterans a few years ago mm-hmm. and he's a hard-working MP and you'd be foolish to uh, you know not keep that guy in your uh, in you know the enemy you know is better than the one you don't know or vice versa <laughs> so no I think uh, uh, you know it's it's early times the first before they got to worry about the cabinet better worry about getting elected again and I think that it's time, whether it's municipal, provincial, or federal, it's time that these politicians start telling us what they're going to do for us. And then forget about a bunch of the party line. What's the point of voting for somebody here if Trudeau or O'Toole is going to tell them what to do and, and otherwise shut your mouth? That's a big, big break in our democracy that we don't have that local representation that we need and they have no responsibility to answer to the uh, their constituents, so it's, it's not a good system at the moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tracy, uh, what's your what's your take on uh, uh, Doherty's uh, appointment to or being named as the uh, mental health critic, and uh, and I guess on on Eric's point about uh, how MPs uh, really have to learn how to represent the riding. 
I was really disappointed, actually, to see that neither one of them were given a critic's role, just because of what that says about the view of the party with regard to our region. Um, you know, I, I've been listening to people in this part of the world for almost 30 years mad about the fact that their voices aren't heard, that they don't have a say at the decision-making tables in Victoria or in Ottawa, and that there are rules and regulations and policies fed down from on high that impact our daily lives without any consideration of what our daily lives really look like. So then when you look at these two MPs that are now, you know, not in their first term, and they, I mean, Todd in particular, I know he held a variety of critics' positions, to have them frozen out of that, regardless of Todd's um, special advisor appointment, I just find that as a message to our part of the world that we're either seen as a lock and they don't need to worry about continuing to listen to us or we're really being discounted. And to be fair, I had some of the same feelings about the Liberal Party in that last election when I was looking for assistance and for some high-profile input in this part of the world. And it just wasn't on the table. So you have a Liberal Party that's looking at this part of the world as God will never win it, so why waste resources? And you have a Conservative Party that's looking at this part of the world and saying, well, we're never going to lose it, so why waste resources? That does none of us any good. And so to Eric's point of wanting our MPs to actually go and represent us rather than be mouthpieces for the party, no matter what party we're talking about, we need to really look at the individual and what's their spine like and what's their ability to stand up on their own two feet and express an opinion that differs from those around them. So I, I'm disappointed. I think that it's a shame that we're going to be again on the outside looking in. Yeah. Um, Herb, I've often said that the best thing that uh, Prince George could do, both provincially and federally, is is elect one MP and MLA from each party. Uh, that way we get better representation. Uh, what, what's your take on that? What, what Tracy was saying about how uh, the Conservatives think this area is a lock, so they don't worry about it, and the Liberals think it's a lost cause, so they don't worry about it. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, people should start learn learn how to uh, vote strategically, I would think. Um, it seems like Prince George has been backing uh, the wrong, uh, wrong party for, for quite a while, um, historically anyway. Uh, but interesting numbers on the, the numbers of people in Cabinet. Trudeau has 35 people in Cabinet. Uh, Andrew Scheer had 65. And uh, Aaron O'Toole has brought that down to 42. So, you know, in terms of representation, yeah, it would be nice if, uh, if parties listened to who their, uh, the, who their members were. But, um, you know, sometimes if you have too many people in these shadow cabinets or even in the cabinet, you're just losing focus. And um, I think, you know, having we should be electing the best people uh, locally and uh, putting them forward uh, rather than playing this, uh, you know, uh, one, one either liberal or conservative game. And, yeah, and you know, having, having intelligence and uh, energetic people is, is probably more important than, than trying to uh, play the, uh, the party odds, I would think. Mm-hmm. Uh, Art, uh, what do you think about that, trying to, trying to put best, uh, vote for the best person rather than, than just the party? Well, it depends on the philosophy, too, uh, the political philosophy and uh, what the party stands for. Uh, I'm sure the candidate will basically uh, espouse the same ideas as their party, so that shouldn't make any difference at all, unless you can't decide between the two. But uh, as far as them representing our views uh, to 
their party or to Ottawa. It seems to me that more than that, the parties or the MPs and the MLAs represent the party's views to us. It, it you know, it, the the Reform Party they tried for a while to have their uh, MPs vote the way their constituents wanted rather than the party wanted. And it just didn't seem to work out. So, um, you know, I, I think it's not the best way in the world that we have now, but it's probably the best of all the alternatives that I can think of. <laughs> paraphrasing. Now, it's Winston Churchill paraphrasing, isn't it? That's yeah. a, had that uh, comment, democracy isn't, isn't, isn't perfect, but it's the best, something to that, it's the it's best the one we've uh, political system in the world except for all except the for that, there you go there you go and that note uh, we uh, come to the end so thank everybody for attending my panelist uh, Eric Alec, Allen Tracy Calageros Herb Martin and Art Betke and go Raptors go game 7 tonight against the Celtics After 9 is a daily presentation of CFIS-FM. After 9 is produced by Alan Wishart, Reg Fair, and Nathan Gita, with guest producer Neil Godbu of the Prince George Citizen. Additional contributors include CBC News and the National Campus and Community Radio Association. For a rebroadcast of today's program, check out the podcast link at cfisfm.ca. To provide feedback or suggestions for the show, please email cfisfm at yahoo.ca. You're listening to CFIS-FM Prince George, a not-for-profit community radio station broadcasting with 500 watts of power at 93.1 on the FM dial. CFIS-FM is owned and operated by the Prince George Community Radio Society.